something about changing those words just to we need to see you. Not just that we want to, although we do need to express our wants to God and our desires to God, but to be able to say we need to see you. God, we need your anointing upon this place. Um, We need your presence upon this place. We come before you because we are needy. We do desire you. We do want to be with you. We do long for you. But we also need you as we need the air that we breathe. We need you as we need the sleep that we receive each night. We need you like we need those green pastures and those quiet waters. And so God, would your anointing be upon us because you are set apart, God. Your word is set apart. This time is set apart. We, we choose to be here each week because we choose to be with you. And so our feet led us here. Would our hearts follow? Would we be open to see and to hear what you have for us, God? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being here with us this evening. We've been in a sermon series on reconstruction Uh, taking a word of deconstruction that is just kind of thrown around right now. And there's not a lot of boundaries. There's not a lot of framework for what that actually is and what that actually means. Uh, Just being kind of named and claimed in all sorts of corners of the world. We're just addressing that in so many ways. And we've done so by rooting ourselves in the beginning of the text. So going all the way back to Genesis, which we actually began back in October. And we've just been taking our sweet time. Um, You might not know this about Pastora and myself. Uh, sometimes there's a plan and sometimes we open a book and we're just there until we're supposed to go to the next book. So that's where we are in Genesis right now. Uh, I think we'll be in Genesis next week. Yeah, we'll see. Um, but that's where we are at the moment. We're in Genesis chapter 22 this evening. I'll be reading and the scripture should be above us and behind us on the screen. Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham... Here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. I'm going to go ahead and say, there would not be another Bible story after that point for me. If I were Abraham, I'd say, I think the book's done. We're good. Um, And I'm not going to ask you to repeat that, God. I heard it clearly the first time. We're good. Alas, the story continues. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son, Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his dad, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his own son. 
But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your own son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to tell this story in three stages in, in some ways, not tell it as a way of teaching it, but tell it as a way of, of it sitting before us in the room and addressing it from three perspectives, really three stages that we have gone through at different points in our faith. And the first stage that I step into the story with is by simply acknowledging I used to love this story. I so admired Abraham's story as a young Christian because I admired his faithfulness. I saw that he would be faithful to God at any cost, that he would be sacrificial to God at any cost. And maybe I loved that story because maybe I needed that story. Maybe in my growing up, maybe in my adolescence, maybe in my youthfulness, maybe as things were topsy and turvy and rocky and bumpy and shaky, and hard and broken. Maybe I needed something just solid, even at a cost. That kind of devotion when the world around you is not perfect, it's not stable, it's not always secure. That kind of faithfulness that invites us to give our whole selves to God as an expression of our faithfulness in return. Here's not only something we can trust, but here is some one we can trust. And Abraham, he must have found the someone that we can trust because he will listen to that voice and he will follow. And so I think in a younger part of my faith, I, I just saw what, what Abraham heard and what he would be willing to follow. Not what he heard, but who he heard and who he would be willing to follow. And I remember looking at that as an exemplar, that kind of faithfulness. And in being able to offer myself back up to God as well and just say, God, I'm here too. I may not be Abraham, I'm just Bobby, but I give you my whole life too, like, like anything, God. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Has anybody ever had a point in their life where you had a faithfulness like that and it wasn't pretty and it certainly wasn't perfect? You may have lost friendships over it. You may have lost yourself at some point along the way over it too. When my wife's dad first became a follower of Jesus, he was a huge music avid fan, had collected like priceless records. And somewhere in the 70s when he decided to follow Jesus, the first thing that he knew that he was supposed to do as a Christian was throw away all of his priceless records into the dumpster. <laughs> Because somewhere somebody told him to be faithful to God was to get rid of all of that devil music that you were listening to. That man woke up the next day and went back to that dumpster. And it was all gone. I think God was like, that's not the sacrifice I was talking about. That's some good music that you could have passed on to your grandchildren one day. And your future son-in-law would have very much appreciated 
inheriting your record collection at some point. I don't want to make too light of this stage of the story, though. I don't want to dishonor it. I think there's even something beautiful about saying to God, at any cost, at any sacrifice, here I am, and it's going to be ugly, and it's going to be messy, and God can still ask hard things of us. Can God still ask hard things of us? Can God still ask us to sacrifice like like anything? Like that part of the story can still be true. We can still hold to that. We don't have to throw that away. This is still a narrow road. It's still a narrow path. It's still a narrow gate. But also this God that we follow as I've grown to, to remain in relationship with this God. I've learned to know that that doesn't have to be the end of the story. In many ways, it can be the entry into the story of our relationship with God. But if that's the first stage of stepping into the story, then the second is this. The second is recognizing that this God is not some sort of dictator that just governs my life without allowing me a voice in the conversation. That this God welcomes our voice. That this God welcomes my voice. And so as an act of worship, I can actually say back to God, I don't know if I like this story. And I can say that in worshiping this God. As much as I was once touched by the story, I can now say to God, God, I'm pretty troubled by the story. I'm not so sure I still love all the things that I once saw as so precious and beautiful. In fact, what kind of story is this guy? Ellen Davis is um, a theologian and a writer, and in her book, Getting Involved with God, which is way too basic of a title of a book for something so brilliant and beautiful, she begins her chapter on this chapter of the Bible by saying, Abraham and his God are appalling. Let me just uh, preface by saying she sure loves God and she sure loves Jesus. Um, And she loves God and Jesus so much that she can start the chapter by saying that out loud. If this is a test, then it would seem that both have failed miserably. Both the one who devised the test, the one who submitted to it, What kind of God commands a father to sacrifice his only son, lets him go through every agonized motion, then halts the action just as the knife has reached the top of the ark at the very moment of descent into a boy's throat? And what kind of father accepts the ostensible terms of this loyalty test? No, under no circumstances, get thee behind me, Satan. Isn't that the right answer to this particular demand from the realm of superhuman power? Our natural, instinctive response to the story is to reject it. Surely this must be a a foreign element that has been snuck into our biblical tradition. For this feels not just pre-Christian, but sub-Christian. Antithetical to everything we know to be true about God, the Father of Jesus Christ. This lover of God, this theologian. This one who wrestles with the words allows herself to say the things we're thinking and feeling and to give us permission to be able to say back to God, I'm not so sure about all this. The painter and artist Rembrandt did 
um, representations of this story of the Bible. And in his younger, early days, he splashed the canvas with paint of color and wonder and awe. And it feels like a Michael Bay film. There's like so much things going on that are big and loud and color and texture. And it's so dramatic. And the angel's arm is here. And Abraham's hand is dropping the sword just in time as the angel is clenching it. And this faceless boy is being arched back as if he doesn't have a face. But as Rembrandt, the artist, experienced loss and tragedy to the deepest core of his own life, Rembrandt would sketch this again. He moves from color and brilliance and wonder and beauty and majesty to now we just have a deconstructed sketch. And if we zoom in to see Abraham's face, he can't even look at the angel. This is a man who has gone through it. But if you see the arms of the angel wrapped around holding not only Abraham, but Isaac as well. The way that I feel about this story often feels like a story of color and brilliance and like uh, teaching a Sunday school flannel board to <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> so now all I've got, Lord, is just a pencil and some paper. And it's wretched and it's raw. And Rembrandt knew that as he knew his own story and as he knew his own life. We may be sitting here today just like that with the posture of Abraham, the eyes that maybe are lost, they're vacant, they can't see, they can't feel the wings of God's shelter around us. We're just staring into the distance because of what we've just gone through. We're wondering not only how did we get here on this mountain that God called us to, but, but why are we here in the first place? Wow. To be in a place like this is to be in a place that we can call deconstruction. And deconstruction is something that people can hear and they can attribute as a crisis of faith or a lack of faith or a collapse of faith. And maybe even more than that, they can hear an attack against the faith to say that this is no faith at all if you question the holy word of God. But deconstruction is not a loss of faith. Deconstruction is faith that is grieving. Deconstruction is a grief process. Deconstruction is still holding the pen, still taking out the paper, still trying to make sense of the story. You may see it differently than you once saw it before. But it's a grief process. And just like stages of grief in our own life, we may be shocked at what we once first believed. That shock may be followed by a sadness. How could I believe that? Oh, that hurts my heart. It could be followed by anger. Wait, who taught me that? Who taught me to believe that? I need to go have some words with them. Hold me back. Then it can be followed by embarrassment. How 
man, I feel like a fool. How could I possibly ever have believed that? And that embarrassment can then turn quickly to condescension towards those who still believe like that. How could they possibly still believe that? Forgetting ever so quickly that we were right there ourselves. And self-righteousness can rise up within us. But our questions, our deconstruction of the faith, these are not stones thrown at faith. They're us taking all of these rocks and the pillars of our faith and re-examining the foundation. Can this hold true? Is this one still sturdy? Does this need to be moved into a different element? It's still a conversation of faith. It is still in relationship with God and with God's people. It is still coming to this scripture and still saying, I I really still believe you, God. I'm here. I'm still present. I'm not going to dismiss or just deny that, that you're still the God of the universe. But God, I got some questions. And in my grief, in my openness, in my honesty, in my vulnerability, I bring that back to you as an offering of worship, God. Can you meet me in that? And those who cannot see that, those who can simply look at our deconstruction of our faith and shun it, they are those who shame someone else's sadness. Let us not be those who shun and shame someone's sadness as they are then unpacking where they've come from and how they got there. This story here in Genesis 22, it arrives from a longer texture, a longer fold in the scriptures as we've been walking with, with God breathing and God speaking and God moving in Genesis to God ordaining women and men, the Ezer and the Adam of the earth to work, to serve, to share, to live, to lead side by side and face to face, naked and without shame and then moved by the craftiness of the serpent in chapter three. We see the falling apart, the brokenness of the oneness with God and with one another. We see Cain rising up. Who am I? Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, Cain, you are your brother's keeper. For that is what it means to be a brother. The fallenness continues, rolls like an avalanche in Genesis 5, rising up into 6, where God says, I just can't do it. we got to start over. We have to move from creation to uncreation, and there will be a story of recreation. We're not there yet. So I set apart this family of Noah, but even as God promises not to do that ever again, he looks at his own humanity and says, yet again they have failed. Okay, let's try again. We move then into the movement of the story that gets us to a story like the the Babel story in Genesis 10 and 11, where the depravity and the fallenness of humanity has reached a point where they want to instead all work together apart from God to be their own God. And so when you arrive in Genesis 12 and you see God setting apart and calling Abram and saying, I'm going to bless all peoples on earth through you. What I want you to see is a God who has gone through it. I want you to see a God who has that face like Abraham had in the image up above. It's almost as if God's eyes are looking off in the distance. Who can I trust? These are my own 
These are my beloved. Who can I entrust this to? I'm trying to bring kingdom come. I'm trying to bring beauty. I'm trying to bring beautiful anointing to all of the places of earth that so desperately need it. Who can I trust? And God commissions Abram and Sarah, but they take it into their own hands and in the atrocity of how they treated Hagar. You should go back and hear Pastor Inez's sermon last week on the God who sees, the God who hears, the God of her story, and not just her story, but the intergenerational healing of not just Hagar, but her boy. And the greater healing that God was doing in all of it. You get to the culmination of all that I've just shared in Genesis so far. And God has seen and heard enough. And I believe God was grieving. And in grief, whether it be lovers, friends, parents, peers, even God, on the precipice of fragility, on the shaky grounds of a relationship in peril, when we fear it might all fall apart, we often do painful and brutal things. Painful and beautiful things that are still somehow wrapped in love. And so God comes to Abraham, I believe, in God's own grief. I believe God is deconstructing. And I believe as God is deconstructing the faith that God has, faith that God had rightly or wrongly placed in humanity, believe God is now checking what can I trust who can I trust I have the promises of eternal life in my hands who can hold this who can I give this to that will see it as a precious seed that they will plant that they will tend to that they will care for that will allow it to multiply not upon their own land but land for all peoples for all time for all humanity Land with torn down fences. Land with sharing and serving and loving and caring. And I believe God constructs this most terrible of faith tests to determine if humanity could ever be trusted once and for all. Now you hear that it's a terrible faith test. I don't like it. And this wretched construct of God demanding Abraham to be willing to sacrifice his one and only son, the son whom he loves. Because at this point, Abram and his wife, they have cast off Hagar and Ishmael. And so I hope Abraham even feels the sting of that. Your one son. Because we know what you did to the other one. I believe this sacrifice emerges not from God's lofty cloud of invincibility, not behind the curtain of the Wizard of Oz. 
I believe it's the kind of sacrifice God asks for as God re-emerges from his face broken in the dirt. Tear-stained eyes, a cracked voice, shaky hands and sorrow in his bones. I don't believe this is some mighty proclamation of God's invincibility. Do this or else. I believe it is a weary pronouncement of God's vulnerability. This is not God's invincibility on display. This is God saying, I am utterly broken and vulnerable. And in my shaky vulnerability, I come to you. Can I entrust the blessing for all of the world into your hands? This is a grieving, vulnerable God, wondering, wretchedly hoping, can I put my trust in you? And as God cries out, I see the face of God in the face of Abraham in that painting as he is looking off. The same story of God's deconstruction is the same story of grief and loss that God's own son would endure to go to a cross. Yeah. A story of creation and uncreation. And then as we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday, re-creation. We catch Jesus on the cross in the middle of the story of deconstruction once again. A wretched, terrible taste of faith. But as Jesus rises as our Isaac that truly was sacrificed, as our ram that was in the thicket, we can take that lens of recreation and enter now into this story through a third door and wonder what awaits us on the other side, what awaits us on the bell curve of creation and uncreation and recreation of construction and deconstruction and reconstruction. What awaits us as we enter into that third space? What does it look like to reconstruct and to enter into a story like this? I heard a pastor, Stan Mitchell, once compared this process to a song by Joni Mitchell of both sides now. In Joni Mitchell's first verse of that song, we'll, we'll walk through the three of them. And she begins like this, with so much wonder and so much innocence and so much beauty and so much joy. She says, rows and flows of angel hair and ice cream castles in the air, feather canyons everywhere. I looked at clouds that way. Joni's saying, this is my creation story. This is my construction story. This is how I once looked at clouds. When I saw clouds, I just saw ice cream castles in the air, feather canyons everywhere. But then she lets us into her story of uncreation and deconstruction. And she says, but clouds, now they only block the sun. They rain and they snow on everyone. So many things I would have done. But clouds, they got in my way. You hear her brokenness and her vulnerability and the loss. 
something that was so innocent and beautiful taken away. And then here's where she lands in recreation and in reconstruction. She says, I've looked at clouds from both sides now, from up and down and still somehow. It's cloud illusions, I recall. I really don't know clouds at all. I, I don't think we're supposed to take from Joni Mitchell's song, Both Sides Now, as she unpacks clouds at the beginning and then as she moves into love and then as she moves into life itself. I don't think the end goal is that we can't know clouds. We can't know love. We can't know life. I think it's rather our posture of how we approach knowing that she's addressing. And it's a posture of deep humility and deep vulnerability. My arrival at the third stage of stepping into the story of Abraham and Isaac is not of puffed up knowledge and proud and I have figured this story out. There's no aha moment, there's no rabbit I'm gonna pull out of the hat. It's rather just simply saying now back to God, I am more humbled by this story, God, than I've ever been in my entire life. What if reconstructing our faith simply begins with reimagining our posture before God as a posture of utmost humility and vulnerability? What if it's saying, you know, I'm not so sure I know clouds, but I'm going to keep looking at them and I'm going to keep sitting here. I might get rained on, and every now and then I might still see an ice cream castle in the air, but I'm still going to put myself under your clouds, God. I have more questions than answers of this story, but I'm here, and I'm listening, and as I do so, I give to God my reconstruction posture of worship, of humility. It's a posture that is simply built on coming back before God and saying, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't know it all. And in this story, I think there's only two main things related to knowing that I can hold on to at the moment. The first, and this is where I'll close. The first is related to God's knowing, or in fact, what God doesn't know. I believe that God doesn't know if Abram will be faithful. I believe God doesn't know if Abraham will break the generational curse of abandoning God as all of his ancestors have done before him. I believe God doesn't know if Abraham will forge a new path of faithfulness for all humanity. So what do I know about God in this story? I know that God knows vulnerability in this story too. And in God's divine vulnerability, God doesn't know how it's going to turn out. And so God's posture is a posture of hope, a posture of faith, and a posture of trust that even the divine God of the universe has to sit and wonder and wait. Will Abraham see this through? The second element of knowing in this story, though, is actually rooted in Abraham. And perhaps you've missed it before, but may you see it and hear it now. Going back to verses four and five. It says, on the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. 
We will worship and then we will come back to you. Somewhere in there in verse four and five of the telling of the story. And remember, I would have stopped the story at verse two if it was handed to me. But if you stuck with the story a little bit longer, there is something that Abraham says out loud back to God. And mind you, I don't think God misses it. On the third day, with God being able to hear what Abraham would speak to those serving him, he said, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Don't miss the pronouns. Don't miss the nosotros. It's in there. We will climb this mountain. We will worship and then we will come back to you. There is a, a worship of Abraham unto his God, even in this most terrible of moments. We will climb this mountain. We will worship. And then we will come back to you. Abraham doesn't know how. He doesn't know when. He didn't know what. But he knew where. And he knew who. He knew that he needed to climb the mountain. And he knew that God would meet him there. And he knew that God would meet them there. He knew that he wasn't the one who loved Isaac more because God loved Isaac too. And he knew that he didn't need to spare Isaac's life because God lovingly loved Isaac as well. Verse 8, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When we come back before God with our questions and our whys and our hows, may we hear this proclamation. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But God will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. And we will be able to go on together. And God did provide. So Abram called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. God may not have known if Abraham would prove faithful. But Abraham knew that God would prove faithful. God may not have known if Abraham would prove faithful. But Abraham knew that God would prove faithful. As I think of construction and deconstruction and reconstruction, an image of a mountain comes to mind. A mountain that Abraham would have known well to climb in his own day. And in this beginning of construction or creation, we begin in that open, beautiful pasture. The pastures, John, we're so lovingly longing for here in greater Los Angeles. And the pasture is the open field where we run and we play and we sing the sound of music as we're through the hills and through the fields and God's lovingly singing over us. But we eventually venture out into our stories and into our lives. And we too may be called to mountains to climb that are terrible and treacherous. And we may not know what awaits us on those mountains. And that element of our faith, that stage that is circular like a winding staircase, we can call those stages of deconstruction. We don't know what it'll cost us. We just know that we've been called to come. We don't know how God will meet us there. We just know that God will meet us there. 
We don't know who we'll have to leave behind. We just know that God will provide for us along the way. But as God invites us to come and to climb and to venture and to see, may Abraham's mantra become our decree. We will climb this mountain. We will worship. And then we will come back to you. We will climb this mountain. It will be a climb. The testing of our faith will be a climb. The testing of the character of God will be a climb. Our own testing of God's own word will be a climb. Examining the ways that we've inherited faith, faith that is often broken and messy and hurts people more than it helps people at times, depending on whose hand it's been entrusted to along the way, it may cause more pain than promise, and it may hurt us to enter back into that story. It will be a climb. We will climb a mountain. And I hate to break it to you, but after you come down that mountain, there will be another. Every exodus from Egypt's got a Red Sea on the other side waiting for you. There will be more mountains. But God will meet you on those mountains too. Because we will worship you, God. We will climb. We will worship. Because even deconstructed steps of faith are not tearing away of faith, but testing of faith. Which means they're faith-filled steps all along the way. And we will worship knowing that the Lord will provide. God's got a ram in the thicket already. God's got a ram in the thicket already. You don't see it. You may not hear it. You may not know it's there. You just got to get there to see it. And then we will come back. This is the last thing I want you to hear. And then we will come back. But we may not come back the same. We will come back. But we may not come back the same. But in case nobody's ever told you, sameness was never the goal. Transformation was the goal. We may not come back the same, church, but sameness was never the goal. You climbed up a mountain to be face-to-face with the living God. If you came back the same, then you must have missed the mountain. Because you met God there. And God provided a ram in the thicket for you. And as you came back down, you were not the same, but you sure were transformed. And that's the goal. God would make us more like God. Vulnerable. Vulnerable. Face caked in dirt. Tear stained. That we would be more like that God.